Good morning. My name is Emily Madison. Today we will be reading from Proverbs 5, 1 through 23, which can be found on page 530 in your pew Bible. Proverbs 5, 1 through 23. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep your discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps fall the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. If that was awkward for you, my mom is visiting today. So um, let me pray for us and for my mom. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, we come now. We've already prayed. We've taken a humble posture. And, and yet I would guess there's more things going on in our heart than just humility. There's um, doubt and frustration and anger and shame and disappointment. And um, just imagine just living in this world that there's people who have a hard time trusting your word. Uh, this passage has probably been abused and misused in some of my sisters and brothers' lives. Um, we just have a short amount of time here, but would you do the supernatural, both healing and reorienting work that you promise in your word? You say it's a light to a path. Uh, it's like honey to our lips. It's nourishment to our bones. It's also a, a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces and a sword that pierces us. So we open ourselves to you now, Holy Spirit, would you speak through your word um, in ways that we um, hear your voice and that would change us. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, all joking aside, um, by way of hospitality, this is our like sixth week. I know from my long introduction, you're like, man, this is always people talk about. Um, it's not, but I think we should probably talk about it more, to be quite honest. It is the world that we live in. And so we chose the book of Proverbs, just trying to be a wise People. It's an ancient book that's written to God's people aimed at speaking to them about what it looks like to live in the real world. 
So just again, by way of review for some or hospitality for others, it's framed in the um, kind of framework or poetic environment of a father speaking to a son. And it closes with the exhortation of a mother. So you have parents on both sides of Proverbs. So it's really a, a book designed to reparent us, to acknowledge, hey, we've lived with broken parents in a broken world. They receive things from their parents. We've been passing down things from generation to generation. What if God had a chance to actually speak to us and reorient our hearts and kind of reparent us has been the framework. And then it's kind of broken up into two parts. The first nine chapters are kind of some speeches the father gives to his son. And then you have from chapter 10 to 31, a lot of just really specific commands, often in couplets. It often speaks as like, this is the positive thing to do, and then here's the negative thing to do. It speaks both of warning and of invitation. There's a danger, and then there's this beautiful delight or this pleasure or this joy that's in front of us. So the Bible doesn't just motivate us away from pain or away from a hell or judgment. It actually motivates us towards something that leads towards flourishing. And so Proverbs is, is a map to that. And, and there are two women featured throughout the book of Proverbs. One is described as this woman named Folly. Uh, to think that there's no God except for the God of your own making or the one that you answer just to yourself. And so Folly looks inward, and then there's a woman, Wisdom, who looks outward and asks for God to speak. And it, Scripture says, very beginning of chapter 1 in Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, so the woman, Wisdom, personifies for us someone who's asking, God, what do you say about this? What do you say about my money, about, about my sex life, about, about work, about my relationships, about how I engage with my kids, how I engage with my parents, my neighbors, what would you say to that? So, so folly is proud and stands against hearing wisdom. Wisdom welcomes and receives and takes a, a humble posture. And because of the way it's framed, you often have then uh, adultery personified as a woman. So let me just say this real quick, like both positive and negative, folly and wisdom are personified in, in female terms. I think it's actually the Bible elevating those things. So when we see here like temptations of an adulterous woman kind of stay in that poetic framework, it's men and women. Men can be wise, men can be fools. Women can be fools, women can be wise. Men can fall into sexual temptation, women can fall into sexual temptation. It's just a framework to help us engage this as a father speaking to a son so we actually get to engage these two things. And what we see in this section here is a warning about folly that actually seeks to commodify people. So I want to just kind of give you these two points. Folly sees people as something to consume. Wisdom sees people as someone to be in covenant with. So we'll have a commodification view, and then we'll have a, a covenant view. And we'll just unpack that throughout the text. And it, it's, again, aimed at both a warning. You'll see all kinds of terrible, disastrous things that happen. Remember, Proverbs is aimed at kind of fast-forwarding the film on your life to the end and say, if you were to live this out, here's what would happen. And you see death and destruction for those who follow their own path and refuse the wisdom of God and, and actually live into this idea of commodifying people and letting themselves be commodified. A transactional situation in the world around us can only end in bankruptcy. It can only end shallow and hollow because you don't have enough to kind of keep making those deposits and keep making payments. Even if you're winning now in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, the way the Bible speaks, as you get to the end of your life, you'll find yourself depleted. You'll find yourself empty. You'll find yourself somewhat hollow. So, so you see a commodity view and a covenant view. And it's about sex for sure, but, but it's about more than sex. If you're familiar with the scriptures, God chooses marriage as an illustration to speak of his love 
for his people. It's both an Old Testament metaphor and a a New Testament metaphor. God the Father is described um, as the, the groom, the lover who has won a bride to himself. And then Jesus comes and is just called the bridegroom. And he actually is after the church and the church is called the bride of Christ. So God uses this metaphor of marriage to speak about his relationship with us. So there's a near horizon where it's speaking about sex for sure. But sex is always about more than just sex. Which is why you find yourself in really sticky situations where you make sex just about sex and either you give it too much weight, you, you deify it and ask it to actually rescue and save and validate and make you okay and it simply can't do that. Or, or, or you demonize it, you push it away, you say it's dirty and bad and it's only harmful and it's for those kinds of people. And so a deity view or a, a demonizing view is not what the scripture has. It has this beautiful dignity Because it primarily is pointing to our relationship with Christ and the church, the Father and His people. So I just want to say that up front as we engage this. There is very much a word for us in our present situation, but but it's about a little bit more than that. And so Proverbs just starts with our understanding of our relationship with God at the beginning of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, And then it moves outward to other people. So it doesn't just stay inside, it goes outward. Jesus would call it this way. He would say the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second commandment is to love others as yourself. That's what Proverbs is doing. It's showing what it looks like to respond to God and then what it looks like to respond to others in light of your response to God. There's a ton going on, but he he seeks to expose the danger and then also explain the delight. And then maybe just one more thing by way of introduction. Proverbs is written primarily from Solomon, or at least he gets credit. There's a couple of other authors that get named there. But Solomon, um, in this area in particular, is a warning to us. He's the one who spoke these words, he recorded these words, and yet he blew his life up around the issues of sexuality. I mean, when you read the Old Testament stories of King Solomon, who was called the wisest ever, you see him fall into all the snares that he warns about, even in this passage, which says to us to take a humble posture, regardless of how you're standing right now, and realize there's a difference between knowing that sex shouldn't be commodified or it should be a covenant and actually living into that. Solomon knew, but the Bible's understanding of wisdom is not simply head knowledge. It moves into your heart and transforms you from the inside out, which is why we're told to guard our hearts. Jesus says that that's where everything comes out of. Your words and your actions, they flow out of your heart. And so it's a warning and an invitation to us to engage our hearts. And so, so the Bible has a view of sex that's deeply satisfying, but it doesn't have the power to save you. And then maybe here's a spoiler alert. Because it's pointing to Jesus, that's the only thing that can save you. That's consistent throughout Scripture. So so with that introduction, let's just look at the text. and Look with me in chapter 5. We'll just go 1 and 2 just to see this pattern. It says, My son, and you could easily read there, My daughter, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. It's this invitation to hear, to take it in, to do something about it. That's the way the Proverbs have been pushing us towards action so not stay in our heads but actually embody it with our lives and now he's going to talk about this commodity view from 3 to 14 let me let me just read it for the lips of the forbidden woman they drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is bitter as wormwood and as a double-edged sword there's a deception there her feet go down not to pleasure and joy and they go down to death and her steps through the motion of them is to this path to Sheol, to the place of the grave. 
She doesn't ponder the path of her own life. She's not even aware of what's happening in the ways of wander, and she does not even know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and don't go near the door of her house. Don't flirt with this, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Again, fast forwarding your life, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of the foreigner. And at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body, they're consumed. And you say, oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink, get this, of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So far from like just something that we could consider or the way Proverbs talks is because sex is an illustration of our relationship with Christ and the church, the power that it has actually has a soul impacting power. Not to rescue and save you through sex, but if you look to sex to be the thing that would save you, it will crush and kill you is the way this text talks, which just even that is huge. In an over-sexualized world where we, I think, have given too much weight to it by asking it to carry our identity, to make us whole, to make us valued, to actually give us a space to be in relationships, to give sex that much power ends in utter ruin, it says. And we have, in our world, so sexualized everything, we've really dehumanized one another. When you think back even to the sexual revolution in the 1960s, and there's a ton of like, secular studies being done of how terrible the sexual revolution was for women. How, how heinous and damaging it's been. To talk about free sex, to talk about non-committed sex, to say we should all just be able to enjoy this, to think about the oppression that's happened to those um, who don't have power, who find themselves actually being asked to give themselves away in, in consensual ways that are non-committed ways that leave them um, empty and depleted. So, so I even just, just a quick Google search, I mean, places like Wall Street Journal and The New Yorker and The Atlantic are, are talking about the impact of an over-sexualized world around us. It is the air that we breathe, and as we breathe that air, it actually happens to, to change us and affect us. And here's the deal, it's not supposed to be that way. We live in a fallen and broken world, and the relationships the Bible talks about are, are like brother and sister, mother and father. I'm talking about sons, talking about husbands and wives, talking about, about friends. That's what's normal in the Bible. So when you see here in chapter 3, or sorry, sorry verse 3 of chapter 5, that the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and you see a little footnote there. If you follow that footnote down, it says that word forbidden could also be translated as strange. So what's happened is we've decoupled sex from relationship and made it a commodity that we just simply consume. So the Proverbs say things like in chapter 30 verse 20 that, that the adulteress she eats and then wipes her mouth like she has done nothing wrong. It's just simply an appetite. And when you make something that's supposed to be relational, something that's an appetite, you wind up more hungry for what you long for and you can only help to use and harm people around you. So, so the Bible's normal relationships again are, are like daughters, sons, sisters, brothers, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, and friends. And what adultery does, what prostitution does, what pornography does, what, what adultery in these spaces does is it decouples our expressions of love from the loving relationships. And that's what makes it so strange. I want to kind of get this concept in your mind. 
Verse 3, the lips of the strange woman. It's not supposed to be like that. You're not supposed to have sex apart from a covenant relationship that keeps you and holds you and makes you safe where you can actually be vulnerable. When you, when you trade your bodies for relationship, it can only actually harm you. And it's strange. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Remember, Proverbs is talking about the grain of the universe, the way God designed things to function. He designed sex to be a covenant expression between two people that are committed to each other. And uh, adultery and pornography, these things actually take rather than give. They can only commodify people and therefore harm them. And we've talked a lot about how Proverbs is weaving together topics, right? So it's not just an isolated thing about work or an isolated thing about relationships. that They go together and justice and mercy and sex often blend together. Just think about our world of how oppressive things are when you ask people to do performative acts apart from relationship. How hollow and dehumanizing. And once you dehumanize somebody, you can do anything you want to them. In that space, what the Bible is elevating for us is what should be the way God designed us, not this strange relationship disconnected from, from a commitment to each other. It's something that actually is meant to lead towards flourishing. What, what's strange about it is an absence of relationship, which is what commodification is, which means sex outside a monogamous committed marriage can only be transactional because you can only use that sex to keep the relationship. And by definition, that is a transaction. As opposed to a covenant that's holding you in the relationship, then sex can be an expression of that covenant rather than a transaction to get it. So I know there's consent and there's lots of conversations about consent. Look actually in verse 6. It says here that she doesn't even know she's doing this. She, she doesn't even ponder the path of life and, and her way. She doesn't even know about them. So, so consent isn't actually the issue. You can commodify somebody and then give consent to it. You can willingly let yourself be commodified, but it still won't lead towards intimacy and lasting relationships. So, so by definition, outside of a covenant, it can only actually deplete and take from you. And I know we live in a world that what I'm saying is just so strange, where consent rules the day. But can you just imagine, like, go back 70, 80 years in our country where, like, racism in the South was just normal? Jokes and postures and ways you would treat people, no one batted an eye. And it was sinful, and it was wrong, and it was outside the bounds of God, but it was socially acceptable. I think there is a new kind of oppression and marginalization that's happening in spaces where actually they're very ancient, but they're, they're kind of out of control in our world where we've begun to commodify people in such ways that we, we use them. And it doesn't matter if it's socially acceptable or it's consensual. The way this talks, it's strange and therefore leaves you depleted end of your life, you, you groan, your, your body has wasted away because, you, again, you've been consumed as a commodity. So chapter 6 speaks about this as well. Chapter 7 speaks about this as well. Would you just flip over there maybe uh, to chapter 7, starting in verse 6. Let me just kind of walk through real fast, like the portrait here of the pattern of what commodification looks like. I want you to have like an ad cycle, or I want you to have the way like someone sells something to you in your mind. So it says this, for at the window of my house, I've looked out. This is verse six of chapter seven. I've looked out my lattice and I've seen among the simple. I've perceived among the youths a young man who lacks sense. Passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her, the adulterous woman's house, in the twilight, in the evening, and at the time of night and darkness. 
And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. One translation says she is rowdy. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies and waits. This temptation is everywhere. So in verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I've offered sacrifices and today I've made my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, you. Of all the people in the streets, I've come out to meet you. You are special to seek you eagerly. And I have found you to think of flattery in that space. I have spread my couch with coverings and colored linens from Egyptian linens. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. This offer of pleasure. Let us take delight of ourselves with love. Because, verse 19, there won't be cost here. We won't get caught. It won't pay anything. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took money with him. And it won't be till the full moon that he comes back. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And again, you could say he persuades her. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And at once he follows her, catch this, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces his liver, the bird rushes into the snare. He doesn't even know that it will cost him his very life. So the temptation is you are special. You deserve this. Of all the people, I want to give this to you. And hey, there's no consequences. There's no cost to this. We won't get caught. It's only going to be good. There's only pleasure here. And then what happens is as you pay the bill, it costs you everything. And you think about like commodities. Like My mind went to the West Kansas plains of these stockyards. Just smell those with me for a moment. To think about an ox being led to slaughter. Go, go there. To commodify a person is to put that person in those stockyards as somebody to consume and market towards. In that space, the promise is that it won't cost you anything, but, but it actually costs you everything is the way the Bible talks. But notice just how flattery and the offer of pleasure, and just think about the temptations in your own life, where flattery and the offer of pleasure that, that won't cost you anything keep popping up. This last week, Ada and I were in Costco, and uh, we were taking that lap down the main aisle, um, I don't know why we did, but we stopped for the salesman for the cell phone thing. Much to my sadness and chagrin. And so we stood there for a moment. And for a second, it was like, you're kidding me. This is amazing. I'll be losing money if I did not take this deal. And we stayed there for a while. And literally at one point, the guy has his calculator out. And we were going to lose $8,000 over the next three years if we didn't get these new phones. You're like, well, I'm, I'm no dummy, but like, that's a lot of money. And so what he's doing is he's calculating like this bill and this thing and what we would save and running that out over five phones. And it was this kind of amazing marketing deal. And then I just asked, so like, what do I pay today? And it was like 1200 bucks. Oh, okay, I don't actually, you're not going to give me $8,000. I'm going to give you $1,200. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So he subtracts, you know, $1,200. So now I'm down to $6,800 that I'm going to make over the next. And as soon as that happened, as soon as he realized, I realized there was upfront cost, he began to backpedal. Hey, you guys have a great day. Good to see you. So thankful. And waited, waited for the next uh, schlep to walk by. Uh, that I, and maybe, hey, maybe you work for them. Maybe you got the great deal. But I was amazed at the way he talked to me about how uh, I deserve this, how I'm going to miss out on something if I don't take it right now. And actually, the cost just kept like being so obvious. Man, I'm, I'm an idiot if I don't take this. 
Hey, I think oftentimes temptation sexually sounds like that. You deserve, you deserve this. You've earned this. No one's going to find out. No one's going to know. In those spaces, the hidden costs are exorbitant. But the upfront offer is something that would actually bring life to you. But because you become the commodity, it can only deplete and take from you. So, so they think about the uh, sales pitch cycle, even in the midst of temptation. Uh, the commodity view actually uses people for pleasure, and it can only end in what he calls groaning and being consumed. Okay, that's the way the world thinks about sex, and it's a decoupling it from relationship, even consensual, apart from relationship. So now let's look at what the covenant view is in verse 15. So he says in verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. And many um, Hebrew scholars see sexual imagery in even those spaces there of God making our bodies and delighting in how he's made us in that space. He says, um, let, them be far, uh, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Right? Again, this strange relationship of sex outside of a committed relationship. It's poetry. I want to give you three things in this text that I think describe a covenant view of sex. The first one is a covenant view of sex has boundaries so it can flourish. And he uses this illustration of a cistern, which I realized was not how you wrote your last Valentine's note. I get it. But, but just go there for a second. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. And think about a container that has walls. That's the idea there. And that's in contrast to, to these springs that are, are scattered out in the street that just spill over. So the way the Bible talks is the covenant isn't meant to restrict you or control you. Or it's not meant to be oppressive or regressive. It's meant to be a space that would actually would hold what is meant to quench thirst and satisfy. The container actually is meant to be a covenant relationship where you can actually be in spaces where you're vulnerable, where you can give and receive, where you can actually have flourishing. Now, I want to be really careful. The Bible does not hold marriage up as the exclusive kind of a key point of humanity. The Bible talks a lot about singleness. And so because marriage and sex are portraits of the way Christ loves us, even as I'm talking, I've been praying for our singles, and we have singles that are in their 90s. We have folks who've never been married in their 80s. We have people who are in their 20s. We have people who, who have been widowed who are single. We have folks who long to be married. We have people in all kinds of spaces, right? So, so to hear singleness is not like the second class in this space. You don't need sex to be fully satisfied. But what God has designed is that sex happens in this container, which means sex outside of that container of a monogamous, committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman can only be commodification. It can only be pain. It can only be transactional. Because there's not something to hold it together. The sex is holding it together. And because the sex is holding it together, that makes the sex performative. And therefore, it can only be transactional. So the first thing about this covenant view of sex is that it has boundaries for our good. In chapter 6, he talks about fire as an illustration. You use water here. Fire is like, can, can a man take coals and hold them in his lap and not be burned? Can you, can you take fire out of what it's supposed to be contained in and it not harm you? And the obvious answer is no. So the biblical boundaries on sexuality inside of a marriage are no more oppressive or regressive than are the edges of a container that would hold water. They are the way that it can go further and flourish and actually can be helped and preserved. So, so when God says that the only 
appropriate expression of our sexuality is inside a marriage relationship. He has our good in mind. So pornography, cohabitating, affairs, uh, things that would be deviant in their sexual, all the things that you struggle with, all the things you, you wonder about, those things are outside of that container and therefore can only be transactional. I think I've said that enough. And I care about it because the lie our world is telling us is that you can decouple sex from relationship, but the consequences of that are dramatic and drastic, and they are damaging people, both men and women. We've dehumanized each other in ways that actually have not led to flourishing. They've not led to flourishing at all, actually. It's like water that's being spilt out in the street. It costs you a ton. It evaporates. and doesn't actually have its intention that's going to bring about flourishing or help to you. So, so the idea of firstly is, is of a container, that it's actually meant to be something that, that holds you. Secondly, covenant view of sex is that sex is something to be delighted in. It's not to be deified, to rescue and save you. It doesn't have that kind of power, nor is it to be demonized. It's something to be delighted in. So, so look in verse uh, 18. He says, let, let, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a, a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, with a strange woman, with no relationship, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Okay, again, my mom's here, so I'm not going to unpack the imagery there, but you can, just, you can just feel it. You just know it. You can just sense there's something here that's beautiful and delighting. Right? Again, it's both, both men and women. You can switch it back and forth in those spaces. And so it's meant to be a delight to us. God is pro-sex. He designed it. He created it. He is very sex-forward even throughout the Scriptures. And yet, our challenge is that we bring a commodification view of sex into our covenant relationship. Can I just warn you here for a second? What's happened in the world around us is we've heard a view of sex that is only transactional, and then you read the Bible and you import that view of sex into a covenant relationship and say, oh, if I had a ring on, then I could do everything I always wanted to do. Without asking, is by nature the thing that you're longing for going to objectify that person? So what's happened is a, a commodification view has been Trojan horsed into the covenant view where people in their marriages now are asking to objectify one another, are asking to have transactional exchanges. And what's meant to actually be a delight now has been tainted, which is meant to say to us as God's people, stop for a second and remember the delight God has for you is different than using someone, taking from someone. And I realize I'm saying sentences now that need like lots of sessions and conversations to unpack, but I simply want to put the category in front of you. Many of you who are married came into marriage with a commodity view of sex and you just imported it into your covenant. And you would know that by being frustrated feeling uneasy, feeling objectified, feeling maybe let down, feeling like if you just read one more book or try one more thing or you do one more, one more action, then it would finally click or would work. And what if instead of giving and receiving, you've been trying to earn even in your marriage bed? I think the commodity view has been Trojan horsed into the covenant view in such a way that we, we've been really confused. And so the idea of this boundary these containers actually give us space to repent to ask for forgiveness to ask for clarity to actually be on a journey with each other to give and to take and to stop and look to the God who designed this thing as the one who says what it should be for and where we have burned through our 
kind of pleasure sensors with pornography. And we've just breathed the sexualized air where you believe the lie that your value was in your body. That whole thing is now backfiring, by the way, when it comes to gender and sexuality conversations. But, but a lot of people absorbed that and brought it into their relationships. And that space and some of the pain is not because God's ripped you off. It's because you've asked sex to do something that it could never actually do. So, so it's meant to have kind of parameters. It's meant to have a container, a covenant that keeps things safe. And actually, because of the vulnerable nature of what sex is, it needs a covenant to protect one another. Before 1960 and the advent of birth control and legalization of abortion and the, the, just kind of move in our culture, every time you had sex, there was vulnerability. We moved it to a thing that you do to actually have your needs met, but it was always tied to relationship, or at least the risk was always there. And so you need a covenant to actually protect and to care for and to, to help in spaces where you've made someone vulnerable. That's the way the Bible talks. And it's not just about procreation. It's, it's something beautiful to actually be celebrated. I just was kind of being silly in my mind. And the Bible says that sex is for consummation. It's for procreation. It's for celebration. And it's for illustration. Talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. It's not meant for completion or definition to define you, or salvation, which means you don't have to be married to be fully human. Jesus and the Apostle Paul would show us this. They would show us that the way God designed us is to be fully human as we relate to the great groom, the one who actually loves us and died in our place, which brings us actually then to our, our third point. Sex is meant to have a movement. This is maybe a little tricky, but, but come into this idea of its poetry We've already engaged the idea of the forbidden woman as the strange woman. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And now we come in and we understand in verse 19, there's another footnote here around the word intoxicated, which says it actually can move towards something. It can actually be led astray, it says. It has a path. It has a motion to it. So it says actually let your wife's body have motion to it. Let it lead you, it says. And then it says, don't be intoxicated. Don't be led astray by a forbidden woman. Sex is meant to lead your heart to something greater than the person in front of you. So here's the deal. If you think the view of Christian sex we've been talking about so far is pretty weird, it actually gets even weirder. It's weirder than you think because Christians believe that sex is actually about God. That it's actually meant to take your heart to the one who designed you and made you, who is the only one who could actually satisfy and fulfill you. Which means you don't have to be married. You don't have to be able to have sex in your, in your marriage. You don't have to actually engage in the physical act to know what the thing is pointing to as the one who can ultimately actually save and rescue you. If it's about Jesus from start to finish, then looking to him as the one who can actually rescue us and save us gives sex meaning and it helps orient us. Because now I can ask the simple question, does this honor Jesus? Would this, would this be like what he would do? Is this a giving, sacrificing, loving thing? Is this something that honors that other person and really values them and gives them dignity? That becomes your filter even in your own married bedroom because what it is pointing to is about Jesus himself. And in that space then, he, because he's the one who satisfies, we get a chance to actually look to him as the one who could actually heal and rescue to actually make things right and new even in our own marriages, in our singleness, for all of your regrets. I don't know where your mind is at as I'm talking. I have regrets. I have spaces where I didn't live into this perfectly, where I've harmed other people and I've been harmed. 
I would just imagine you're, you're like me in lots of ways. And maybe the story is different and the details are different, but you have jagged edges around this. So, so maybe we could just close by asking, what do you do? First, would you realize the danger of dehumanizing someone? Just acknowledge what the text is talking about. Just receive the warning. And then after you realize that, would you repent and turn from it? Not just numb yourself to that, not just keep going, not just say that's what everybody else is doing, but actually turn away from what you know will only end in bankruptcy. And then ask God to help you renew your mind, to actually think differently. Romans 12 talks about not being conformed to the kind of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Would you ask God to help you actually think differently, to stop sexualizing people around you and see them as fully human, not somebody to be consumed? That's a massive prayer for us to pray. And then would you reorient your life around Jesus as the ultimate one that you're longing for? The good news is that what this thing is pointing to, you can have regardless of your marital status or the quality of your marriage, whether or not you've been widowed or divorced, wherever you find yourself, what sex and marriage is pointing to, you can have in Jesus. He, he loves you. And maybe you could think about the way the Bible talks about adultery and betrayal throughout the scriptures to speak of God's people and the relationship that he has with them. And as you think about your own life and the places where you want to repent or change or turn, to think about the one you're turning to is the one who gave his very life for you. The one you've cheated on spiritually is the one who died in your place so that you could actually be in relationship. He made the covenant view possible. Thanks be to God, he doesn't approach us as commodities where we performatively exchange our good behavior for his love. Thanks be to God that he puts us in a covenant where he does all the work to make us safe so that we can even repent and struggle in ways that actually draw us close to him. So so we'll take communion now. Just as sex is a, a covenant renewal ceremony, communion is a covenant renewal ceremony reminding us that God is for us, that he's, he's with us, he wants to actually help us. So would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? Man, that's a ton of words. There's a lot there. But would you hear at the top of that, there's a God who loves you, who died in your place, and he describes himself as a lover who came for you, pursued you, welcomes you. That's why Christians take communion. It's not to perform or to earn. It's to remember the covenant God made with them. And again, I think it's appropriate to talk about that in in like with sex in a marriage. In that space, then, I would invite you who trust Jesus to come forward and take communion. The way we take communion is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. The cup represents his blood that's shed for you. The bread represents his body that was broken for you. And Christians are saying, I am trusting this. I'm not performing. I'm trusting this to make me whole. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of the bulletin that will help you kind of ask and talk to God and give you some examples of what it would sound like to just ask for help to believe. You stay in your seat and just ask for him to speak to you. Followers of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and, and take communion. And as you come, come just remembering the one who invites you, did everything you needed him to do so you could be whole regardless of where you are sexually. Jesus, would you come now and speak to us? Would you help us in this space? Remind us of your love and mercy in ways that we actually experience you freshly in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, come when you're ready and then we'll sing.